Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we wanna say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Ryan S., Jackie A., at DJC3798680, Nick W., and Sean M. On the program today is a new guest of a company that has been on the program in the past. Mr. Steve Blower has joined us. Steve is the chairman of COSA Resources, an Athabasca Basin-focused uranium exploration company that is focused on advancing a number of uranium exploration prospects, primarily on the east side of the basin. The team at COSA has had recent past success with uranium discovery in the basin. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol COSA, as well as on the US OTC markets under the symbol C-O-S-A-F. Steve, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to be here. Good to talk to you. Good to finally get you on the program. Well, first time on the program, Steve, and I appreciate you selecting Smith Weekly to have a conversation, as I can appreciate very much that uh, remaining selective on exposure is important. Why don't we start off here first with you covering your relevant background and experience as a geologist in the natural resource sector and specifically in this uranium segment? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I am a, a geologist. Several aspects of the of the business um, that I've done over over my career, which is now a fairly long career, quite a bit of exploration, certainly, and then some mine geology at open pit copper mines in British Columbia and resource estimating consulting after that. And then honestly, I, I was missing uh, being in the exploration business uh, through those uh, stretches of my career. And, and exploration is why I got into geology in the, very, in the first place. So uh, yeah, in about 2006, I guess I, I had an opportunity to get back into exploration, was really missing it. And that ended up being uranium in the Athabasca Basin. So yeah, somewhere around 17 years ago. And now, yeah, I'm into a fourth uranium exploration company doing work in the Athabasca, I guess five, if you include another one that, uh, that I'm a director of. So, um, yeah, so really that's, uh, that's my story. That's my career history. I'd like to have you uh, also just cover your thoughts on the uranium market today from a geologist perspective, of course, which is always good to have. You know, how do you look at this uranium market? I mean, obviously, very exciting times at the moment. Uh, it's great to be a part of the sector uh, with uranium screaming up through $100 a pound. And of course, mentioned that I started in the uranium business back in about 2006. And, and that was really the kind of the heart of the last uranium boom. And so that was a, obviously another exciting time. So I've, I've kind of come a full cycle here. Been through some, a couple of peaks now and... Uh, and a big long trough. And, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting time. Uh, the work is more fun. Uh, capital flows much more easily when uranium price is booming. So it's a good time to be in uranium exploration. It's always good to get different people's perspective on things here and you know where we're headed and how uh, the outlook looks for this sector and uh, yeah. just where we are on price and how quickly it changed. And Quickly from the sense that you've been in here longer than I have, but certainly seven years for us is a bit long, but we're still here and 
we were able to stay here as well. And it's just good to see this come back around in the right mm-hmm. direction and at a price, I think, that uh, reflects to some degree the problems that are in this sector. Yeah, sure. You bet. It's really interesting. I get asked a lot, of course, you know, are there any differences that you see between this current boom and, and the previous one? And, and, I, and I think there are a lot of differences, actually. And and it makes me think that, that uh, this one, I mean, everybody always says the peak is going to last longer than the last one. But uh, it, it does make me think that that might be a little bit true here in this case. Um, you know, last time, 2006, 2007, the price came off quite quickly as... Um, really as the Kazakh started to really ramp up production, right, and essentially flooded the market. And at the same time, Cigar Lake got their mining issues sorted out, and so there was lots of supply coming out of there. And so I think that was really the the reason that the uranium price fell off. And then it was sort of exacerbated by the Fukushima event, of course, in 2011, when all the reactors in Japan were shut down and, and the others across the globe were shut down also. And so, yeah, we had that long trough, right? Uh, I think we saw, what, $16, somewhere back in around, oh, I don't know, 2017 or something to that effect. Uh, and then we've been on a pretty steady climb up since. And, and I think the real difference this time around is that there are not any uh, major producers set to flood the market. The closest one that I see coming would, would likely be next gen. You know, they haven't really started building that thing yet. So they're probably... Uh, a little ways off yet so I, I think there's a really good chance that we've got a a few years of some you know good sustained high uranium prices ahead of us here yeah as you and i both know uh, operational and construction success is very difficult to come by in this sector specifically it's very hard to get a line of sight to any major greenfield project actually being successful especially ones of super scale and that have basically record-breaking features about every one of them. It's, it's hard to imagine record-breaking happening altogether perfectly in succession when those types of large-scale projects haven't been built in this sector in that region for decades. Where are those people and is there truly the expertise required to get there? And, and there's very few out there that are able to do that, not to mention all the other risks that you and I both know that come with operatorship, which is so different than expiration, as you well know. I'd like to get into COSA in a moment, but Mm -hmm. how about you take us back here? And this is a highlight here that that we need to talk about because it's recent, it's, it's fresh in our memory, but walk us through the success of ISO Energy and the discovery at Hurricane from essentially how that initial drilling was determined there, Steve, the work that was being conducted in the background to deploy that program that caused discovery, and then just that work that went into the target selection, maybe some of the challenges that happened, and then just how Hurricane evolved from there, which ultimately became a takeout, the discovery team left. But just talk about that particular phase of that initial work that created quite a bit of value. Sure, you bet. So ISO Energy, I was there for about five years, uh, really about when it started. Um, Craig Perry, uh, who was one of the founders of NextGen, um, led the spin out of, of ISO Energy, and then he ran that company for about five years. And I was there for most of that. And um, and uh, boy, it's probably the best five years of my career. Really hats off to Craig, honestly. You know, he's, he's just a tremendous guy to work with. And uh, did a remarkable job with that company. Well, heck, both with getting NextGen started and getting ISO started. And um, yeah, we ended up 
just with a really remarkable team of, of geologists. And, you know, because NextGen uh, essentially held 51% of our shares, they participated in every financing. It made, made financing relatively easy compared to what others were going through during that trough of the uranium market and really just allowed us to capitalize on uh, the trough and go out and acquire some assets that uh, that others just couldn't get. Everybody else was kind of cocooning and not doing anything, but we were actually fairly aggressive and we managed to get a few really nice pieces of ground. We called them Geiger and then Laroc East, which was Cameco's old Kernahan property for relatively cheap. Um, it was just the state of the market at the time. And Laroc East in particular, which used to be called Kernahan Lake, was a property that had, you know, a, a smattering of old historical drill holes completed by Cameco in the past, uh, got some sniffs of uranium, but it was along a pretty fertile trend, um, the Laroc trend, uh, which to the west of Laroc East had a couple of uh, uh, deposits on it. Well, one deposit called called Laroc Lake uh, with some decent splash sections in it, but it never had much in the way of size. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so we, we just liked the trend. And and when we had an opportunity to get this Laroque's property, uh, we jumped on it and like I said, it was cheap. So it was kind of a neat story because it all happened very quickly. We, we got the property, I think it was in, uh, I wanna say May of 2018. We were actually just starting a drilling program on the Geiger property, which was nearby. And we had an eight hole program in mind there. We, we drilled the first seven holes that we didn't really hit much, weren't getting much joy. And so in the meantime, we'd run up and had a look at all this historical drill core at um, Laroque East and, and realized that there was some pretty decent looking targets, we thought, especially over on the west end of Laroque East. Uh, there were some holes, historical holes that were fairly altered, a little bit mineralized at the unconformity and uh, hadn't really been followed up. So, so with our eighth and final hole of that, Geiger program, we we actually flew the drill up to Laroque East and drilled our favorite looking target at Laroque East. And, and again, this was just like two months after we'd acquired it. So this was June or July of, of 2018. And uh, yeah, luckily with our very first drill hole, we hit, uh, I think it was 1.3% over about eight meters. We were away to the races. That was that was the initial the discovery hole at Hurricane. First hole we ever drilled up at Laroque East. And eight weeks after we bought the property. So <laughs> it was great. And uh, what a way to start. And and then, of course, uh, we just started drilling it out. And one thing that did happen was that we had a property boundary off to the west, a few hundred meters away from the Discovery Hall. And, of course, it turned out that mineralization got better and better as we approached the property boundary. Um, but it was quite spectacular, even on our side. Um, you know, some drill holes of several tens of percent uranium over over several meters and uh, yeah, ended up being the, what ISO is calling the world's highest uh, grade uranium deposit. So truly great, lots of fun. You know, the, really what made it fun was the team. I think, you know, we had uh, Andy Carmichael, who's with us at COSA, Justin Rodko, who's with us at COSA. Those guys were, were the key geologists in the field for us, uh, working on a hurricane, making the discovery and uh and and then figuring out the geological controls on it that, that led to it being uh you know a, a pretty decent sized deposit so yeah really great it's my understanding chemical is working on it on on their side of the property uh, boundary now over on the west side and so it'll be interesting to see how big the thing actually becomes
Yeah, it's going to be interesting there, Stephen, just with the transaction that occurred, how that pro forma co will be able to take care of delineating that deposit further and advancing it. So that'll be another one just to watch as far as, you know, what the interest is of actually moving it forward relatively quickly, or if it's something that just kind of gets put on the back burner. And then Cameco, as you said, you know, you're an interesting boundary right there with respect to that. And the jury has pretty much decided that uh, this extends clearly into Cameco's land there as well. So makes sense there to probably take a look at it as expiration capital starts to come up here and obviously pipelines have to be expanded and built. We know that some of these projects that are in production in that area are later stages of their lives. And obviously we have to replace pounds and it'd be interesting to see who starts to do that first, right? Yeah, I think both both Cameco and Arano, I mean, that's actually a JV on the other side of that property boundary. Those guys, I think, would both like to uh, be adding to their pipeline of projects. So yeah, it's, it's uh, super interesting. You know, you've spent a good amount of time with some other parties out there on some discovery work and on the ground. You know, when you look back at this and you look at, you know, the success at ISO and obviously what you guys are planning to do with COSA and have already been doing it with COSA with some of the successes on property acquisition and definement of uh, the plans on what property is going to go first and so forth. But just looking back over your time of looking at these various deposits, these discoveries in the basin that have been significant and, and based on the various companies that you've had experience with, what do you think, Steve, is some of the key ingredients to really facilitate a good discovery in the basin? <laughs> I think there's a lot of ingredients that go into it, right? Um, but I think the exploration team is the key there. When I look back at you know, Denison before the ISO days, we had some success there too. Phoenix had been found before I got there, but we, we did manage to look, uh, look into uh, the Griffin deposit, uh, which is a, a sizable basement hosted deposit on, on the Wheeler River property that, that I think one day will complement what they're doing at Phoenix. Um, and it's, it's basement hosted. My point was that, uh, you know, the team there was, was quite fantastic. I thought it was a real neat mix of, of young geologists who had just enough experience, knew what they were doing, um, along with some some guys who had a lot of experience, uh, so some, a few veterans in the in the crowd. And uh, yeah, it was it, I thought it was just a tremendous mix of people that were really good at exploration. And and I think we had something very similar at uh, ISO, you know, a, a mix of of young, energetic, super bright people like Justin and Andy and. Uh, you know, the odd grizzled old veteran like myself to, to uh, round it out. So, yeah, I, I think that's a, a really key component. I, I think it's helpful to be on the east side, to be honest, you know, not to discount what NextGen's done over on the on the west. But, um, you know, with all that infrastructure that's on the east side is very helpful for both exploration and, and putting projects into gear once you do find something. So, uh, you know, the, the roads, the power lines, the the mills especially, uh, you know, I think a, a 50 million pound deposit over on the east side is, uh, you know, certainly something that could go into one of those existing mills, whereas, you know, you probably need something much, much larger if it's in an area that has no mills. So, yeah, um, it's those sorts of things. It's it's a certain amount of perseverance. Um, you know, you've got to be willing to to keep at it. Uh, you got to be willing to not be wrong, right? If you're uh, if you're afraid to be wrong in this business, you're not going to last very long. Um, you tend to drill a lot of really super good ideas that turn out to be just nothing. <laughs> and so, uh, 
so yeah, you got to be willing to put up with that, and uh, and then hopefully you've got some people that believe in you that that are raising the money. I mean, that's the other big factor, right? Uh, the, the, one of the real key components of exploration success, of course, is is capital markets and, and being able to raise money, and and that's really what drove, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of that success at, at ISO uh, and at Denison, you know, was our access to capital, and that's thanks to guys like Craig Perry and Ron Hochstein at the time at Denison. So it's all those things have got to come together, really. And uh, if you can do that, if you can bring it all together, then uh, then you've got a decent chance of success. I think that's where we're at with COSA. Uh, you know, I'm, we've got this incredible team. We've been around, uh, we've done it before, we, we'll do it again. And, uh, uh, you know, we've got access to capital uh, that is pretty much unparalleled. I think we're working on the east side where all that infrastructure is. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about what's coming up for COSA. It certainly is all about capital and being able to obviously provide very good information and data to those capital providers to make sure that they are writing the checks and trying to be as efficient as possible on exploration obviously saves capital, but it is difficult to get it right on the first shot and talk a little bit about that a little bit later. But uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the comments there and interesting times and definitely it takes a lot of pieces and parts to get this right. And sometimes it's, uh, I suppose in some respects, it's a bit of an art rather than a science. And sometimes uh, it may not be, it may be more of the science that is, is part of it as well. So there's just uh, a lot of variables. And obviously I think the biggest key piece um, from all of that is the experience because if you have the experience, then the rest generally can start to fall in place, assuming you have obviously the ground as well. But experience to me is it could include the ability to raise capital, the ability to find you know good targets and facilitate a discovery. And so experience is uh, super important in my opinion in this sector. And as you know, um, competency and experience are probably at its low in the sector at the same time. Well, we have a new audience, uh, certainly since we've last talked to Keith at COSA, you know, there's probably a few folks in the audience that probably haven't heard of COSA yet. So how about you give us just a quick overview of the company, and then we'll talk some more details. After the discovery of ISO and drilling it out and, you know, all the excitement there, I think we were just kind of, some of us anyways, we're kind of looking for new horizons, honestly, you know, something different to do. So, so we started to kind of peel away a little bit from ISO and decided that maybe we should, you know, maybe try and list something ourselves. And, and so we ended up doing that on a, on a copper project actually in Saskatchewan. That's really how COSA got started, uh, the Heron project, which is still in the fold, but it's not something we're working on. We clearly pivoted back to uranium now, but uh, so we listed a company based on some copper assets uh, near Janus Lake, which was being worked by Rio Tinto at the time. It was forums ground. I guess the crux of it was that, um, yeah, that drilling didn't go all that well for Rio and, and our copper project wasn't looking all that spectacular because of that. So so we started to look around at what else we ought to be doing. And, and uh, you know, obviously the uranium market was starting to go and we had all this uranium experience. So we decided to pivot the, the company to uranium. Uh, it was a pretty simple decision, really. You know, probably, what was that? I want to say mid-22, something like that. Uh, we, we made that switch. So COSA is still quite new, um, acquired some ground, you know, because the uranium price was starting to go a bit, it's, it hasn't been that easy to get good ground. And, and so we, you know, we looked quite hard for quite a while for projects and realized that, well, pretty much everything on the Eastern side had been staked up, certainly any, any good ground, but, but we did realize that a, 
uh, a bunch of claims over top of the cable base years when we're, we're going to expire. Right around Christmas time, uh, a year ago, a year, and a year and a month ago, managed to pull together most of the ground on the cable base years. And that, at that time, we realized that it, we suddenly had a, a real project, you know, something that we could really sink our teeth into and had a significant scale, prospectivity. It was the kind of place where there was still room to find elephant-sized deposits. And, and so that really got us excited and really has cemented COSA as a uranium exploration company. And, and we've been going like crazy since. At that point, then suddenly we were clearly, as I said, a uranium exploration company. So Andy Carmichael joined us out of ISO to be our VP exploration. Justin Rodko joined us to be to look after the corporate development function. And Darren Morgans, uh, our CFO, joined us at about the same time. So suddenly we had a kind of the band back together from the ISO days. Uh, we had Janine Richardson on the board. She was a CFO at ISO. So really a lot of ex-ISO people. A terrific team. Another guy that joined us on the board is Ted Truman, who wasn't a part of ISO, but he was running the first uranium exploration company that I got involved with in the basin back in the last boom, uh, Pitchstone Exploration. And and he's just one of the best uranium geologists I've ever met. And uh, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. And he's a really vital piece of, the, of our board. So that's basically how COSA got going. Steve, that's great. I appreciate the background there. And you've actually covered quite a few people at the company that are going to be an important piece as we move forward here with the company. How about on just on capital structure here? We, we like to check in on this uh, frequently with our guests. Can you cover off for us uh, where the company is on shares outstanding at this point, as well as the major investors in the company, including the management board and insiders? I mean, Coast is still relatively young, so we're lucky in that we have quite a nice uh, cap structure. I think Keith has done a really good job of of looking after that. Um, so we are we're about uh, 46 million shares outstanding currently. We've really only had one significant raise since since we listed, I believe, and and that was largely uh, to some uranium funds at the time. So. We have about 21% institutional uh, fund ownership and management advisors. We've heck, we've got 24% of the company, so it's tightly held. And uh, yeah, there's just not many shares, and I think that's you're starting to see that reflected in some of the price action lately. I did talk about a lot of the ex-ISO guys that have teamed up with us, ex-ISO people, but um, you know, I really didn't touch on Keith very much at all, and and uh, he's he's the most important piece of this whole thing. I've said before that I don't think you could build a better CEO for COSA. He and I worked together at Denison. He's, an, he's a uranium geologist. And then he uh, he went and did his MBA at UBC. Uh, and so he's he's this young powerhouse of a, of a CEO that I think is just doing a remarkable job. And so, uh, yeah, watch out. Yeah, Keith, I just really enjoyed uh talking with Keith on our last podcast and uh, just great leader here at this new company and really appreciate that. And of course, Craig Perry as advisor and yourself handling the board and some of the greater strategy on the ground and appreciate that. And of course, Andy, you know, we talked at a lot already. You mentioned a number of the people and feel free to mention any more at this point. But one of the other things here, the company has acquired some new projects recently adding to the portfolio. It has sized up quite a bit since you guys got uh, 
focused pretty hard back in 22 and into 23 and so forth on startup. You know, talk about what you see here now that you look at this portfolio and you guys put together the plans. What are you thinking in terms of things you'd like to accomplish on the exploration front this year as far as field work, office review, testing, surveys, and potentially drilling here? And what do you think the first project focus will be for the team? Mm -hmm, sure. So, you know, I think it certainly starts with URSA. Uh, you know, it's, it is currently our flagship project. It is the most perspective in front of us and for several reasons. Um, I think I touched on a couple of them already, but probably the key one is that it, it's just this big trend that is known to be um, fertile. There's some weak uranium mineralization along it and, and there is enough space to hide several elephant sized deposits along it. So, you know, tick all those, ticks all those boxes. So, so that's what we're working on first. We're, we're doing a lot of geophysics right now, um, making sure that when we do get in there with a drill that our, our targets are as uh, well-developed as possible. Um, drilling in the Athabasca uh, is certainly not a, a cheap venture. And so we, we want to make sure that we're, we're drilling as efficiently as possible. And, and uh, yeah, the king of that is Andy Carmichael. He's just so good at it. So, so yeah, we're working hard at that. And, and so that will be our first drill program coming up. We're actually going to get that started in this quarter. We're establishing the access in there right now in the camp. And uh, we do expect to be drilling this winter in Adversa. Um, but what we'll also do is, is with that winter access, we'll bring in a, a lot of supplies and gear for a bigger program this summer. Um, bigger drilling program that is so so that will be happening also and um, well, one thing with Ursa is that the holes are fairly long and so what we've seen uh, a need for is to balance some of that with some shallower sandstone properties uh, and and we've done that quite nicely just lately with things like uh, Aurora down in the on the southeast corner that's a new acquisition Justin Rodko, corporate development manager, has done a terrific job of putting some of these projects together. That's a very recent acquisition. It's only about 17 kilometers away from the Key Lake Mill. It's right on the basin edge. Gosh, it's terrific. Uh, it's gained in stature in my eyes because some of the work I've been involved with, with 92 Energy, an ASX-listed company of which I am on the board of, uh, that has made a discovery at the GMZ, a very recent discovery, a really nice zone of basement-hosted mineralization. Uh, in that same general neighborhood uh, on that south uh, west, southeastern corner of the Athabasca Basin. And I think has really increased the, the prospectivity of that whole area. So, uh, so yeah, I'm very excited about Aurora, um, we're, but we don't have drill-ready targets there yet. We'll have to get in there, do some geophysics uh, and develop those targets and, and then get at it. So, you know, if anybody has a map in front of them, they need to look at Orion also. Uh, we just added to that project with some ground that we acquired from Ken Alaska. They called it Titan. We've now bolted it on. It's just expanded our Orion project. I love it because it's actually part of the Laroque trend, uh, which is near and dear to our hearts because that is the host of the hurricane deposit. So big piece of ground covers a long stretch of the Laroque trend. I think, I think we have a decent shot of finding something on there. Again, uh, it needs more work before we're ready to drill it, but uh, but we'll get at that and make sure it's ready to drill uh, as soon as we can. 
let's come back to Ursa for just a moment and just talk about uh, specifically some of the next steps that you guys intend to complete there at Ursa. And then if you can speculate for us a little bit here, give us a flavor as to when you guys think that that first drill program would kick off at Ursa to test some of those targets that you guys have defined for this initial program. So it's an amazing project. It covers about, it's about 60 kilometers long along that cable bay shear zone. Uh, you know, a, a known big crustal break. As I said, there are uh, some uranium showings along it already. We know that the trend is fertile. Um, there's 15 holes, I believe, historical drill holes along that 60 kilometer long length uh, that, that are now within our Ursa property boundary. Um, there are multiple, uh, what we call conductors within there, parallel conductors. Um, and so within that 60 kilometer length of property, there are probably, the, I think, over 100 kilometers of, of electromagnetic conductors. And, and those conductors are important because they, they mark graphite in the basement. You know, with, with uh, geophysical techniques, we can't directly detect uranium deposits, but we can directly detect the rocks that, that tend to host them most often. And, and those are graphitic uh, basement rocks. And so we, we see over 100 kilometers of these graphitic basement rocks at Ursa. And you can imagine with only 15 historical drill holes out there, some of which did hit weak uranium mineralization, uh, there's just an incredible amount of potential there. So what we had to do is, is narrow down our focus. Uh, it's almost impossible to systematically drill over 100 kilometers of target zones efficiently. So, so we've gone in there with a lot of geophysics, started off with a big airborne uh, mobile MT survey to both pinpoint those conductors better because they were originally found with some old, obsolete, outdated technology. And so we think we can improve on locating them, um, which I think we have done very well, but also then try to find what look like weakly conductive alteration zones in the sandstone and, and prioritize those for drilling along these 100 kilometers of, of conductors. And, and again, I think we've had huge success there. I think Andy likes to say that we probably narrowed the, the prospectivity of the prospective uh, conductors down from about 100 to maybe, you know, 20, 20 kilometers or something like that. So that starts to be something that we can handle. So now we'll get down. Uh, we're, we're currently there on the ground with more ground geophysics, again, focusing our attention on those key areas and trying to delineate the, the, the target areas better ahead of getting in there with a drill. So, so yeah, the, the winter access is, is well underway. Uh, camp is, is going in. And uh, so we expect to be drilling, you know, uh, I would say by the end of this month, um, you know, if not the first week of March sort of thing. So that's, that's our, uh, that's our projected schedule, but it all depends on many things, uh, including weather. Uh, and so, yeah, hopefully things stay uh, nice and cold and tight uh, for the water crossings that we have to get across to to get in there. To talk just a little bit on the ground here, when you guys get kicked off with the drill program here pretty soon, you know, so as that first hole gets drilled, talk a little bit about just how you guys are going to interpret that first core coming out um, in the field and maybe some of the adjustments that happen in the field live when you guys are drilling. And I know some of this, of course, is to some degree, some of this boils in the field down to gut sense based on the adjustments and stuff that you see out mm -hmm. there. 
uh, when you're drilling, yeah. but just talk a little bit about some of that field work and how mm -hmm. you guys may or may not adjust, or if you have a story, you could tell us on prior uh, drill programs that you've been on, you know, just as mm -hmm. far as, you know, field adjustments and how that goes when, you know, maybe that first core comes out, it doesn't come out as expected based on the modeling and the assumptions based on the data interpretations, or maybe it comes out better. Just talk about that. Give us a bit of a flavor. I mean, typically what happens is that um, drills intersect the alteration zones around these uranium deposits first before they actually hit the uranium zones because the, the volume of the alteration is much larger uh, and extends much further away from the, from the zones than the uranium does itself. And so, you know, you have to, first of all, I guess you have to be able to recognize that. So luckily we can tick that box. We, we, we kind of know what we're looking for. And if we get into some alteration, we should be able to vector towards mineralization. You know, every once in a while you you, you get lucky. Like I said, uh, with Hurricane, that was our first hole drilled on that project. We hit mineralization. That doesn't happen very often. Uh, 92 Energy, uh, that was actually the fourth hole that we drilled on that project. That was spectacularly lucky, yeah. I would say, you know, obviously lots of people did lots of good work on, on uh on those targets, but nonetheless, it, it often takes many more holes. Uh, I think Wheeler River is a really good example for Denison uh, Phoenix deposit. The first real serious uranium mineralization that was ever seen at Wheeler River was, I think, discovered with the 128th hole or something like that. It was 100 and something holes. You know, that's that's the way it can go. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, the work that Andy has done in trying to refine our targets at URSA will, will uh, certainly, you know, help us identify some alteration zones fairly quickly. Uh, and honestly, if it doesn't, we will just we'll move off. We're not there to beat a dead horse by any means. We'll, um, we'll recycle projects as fast as we can if they're not turning out the way we want them to. Even when we were at ISO and we drilled that first hole up at Rock East and got success there, I mean, that was actually, I think we'd gone through five or six projects before we uh, had success at Rock East. So I guess that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, Steve, that's good. And you put it in perspective too, and I like the, the terminology, you know, we're not going to sit here and beat a dead horse. That goes far with us. So I appreciate that. And makes sense if it's not working out in the thesis, the hypothesis, if you will, is broke, then it makes sense to continue to move on to the next uh, prospect. And again, comes back to capital efficiency, right? And so yes. you mentioned there at the end about ISO and some of the time it took. And, and that was one of the next things I was going to ask you about was one of the things that's interesting there is, is just putting discovery expectations into context, Steve. And, you know, mm -hmm. We hope to hit successfully on every drill hole, but the reality is it's often much different than that. And really each hole drilled should always be a learning experience to adjust on the next hole. But, you know, often exploration programs can come up in, I suppose, oil words, dry. And I guess just wrap some context and some time around and just talk about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I touched on it briefly already, you know, it, in this business, you you just can't uh, you can't be afraid to to miss, right? You can't be afraid to be wrong um, because it happens all the time. I, you know, I, it's very rare that, that you drill a successful hole, um, and that doesn't mean that the ideas were bad by any means, right? Um, some of them <laughs> have drilled an awful lot of really terrific targets that were great ideas that just didn't pan out. Um, the bottom line is you're looking through a bunch of barren sandstone with, with some geophysics and, and trying to come up with 
the chest of treasure that's down underneath of it all and it's very difficult to, to find it so i guess that's the best way to sum that up you're often blind i mean certainly have tools you can use to help with that blindness but uh, often these things can be quite blind so i appreciate that mm-hmm. and i think folks investors have to be understand a little bit of patience here that it takes some time and <laughs> takes some effort to finally get there even if it looks initially on paper looks to be maybe a failure you have to put it all in a proper i guess picture if you will and have the right expectations and context around it you're absolutely right and it's it's probably highly unlikely that we'll drill into you know significant uranium mineralization with our first ever program at ursa but what we hope to do well obviously we hope to drill into uranium mineralization with our first program. But um, outside of that, what's what's more likely is that we will drill into some decent looking alteration, uh, hopefully with some elevated geochemistry and hopefully some signs of those graphitic rocks in the basement. And if we can get those things all coming together, then then we'll know that we're, you know, reasonably close to something uh, that might be significant. So so then we'll vector towards it with with future drilling. And, and that's that's the way this usually goes. So, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Andrew. I think that's a good point to add. And improving the confidence level with the team is also another important piece that the likelihood of that success uh, becomes better as well. Steve, you're a geologist. And as you know, uh, you and I've talked about this. uh, Good talent is hard to come by and let alone good, competent, technical people, not only in the natural resource sector, but specifically more so even in the uranium sector. And I think uh, all of us who have notable demanded time get a sense of a real meaning of time allocation and efficiencies on use of time. How do you straddle multiple companies, uh, balance responsibilities and justify being across, you know, multiple jobs and, you know, how does that work for you on a day by day basis? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm chairman of COSA. So, I mean, I don't get a salary for it or anything like that. Um, my day job is working for Vizsla Copper with, uh, uh, with Craig Perry and Mike Conard in there. Invent a group looking after exploration there, but I still absolutely love uranium exploration in the basin. And so I, I am very glad to be able to, to be a part of it uh, as chairman of COSA. Um, and it just keeps me, you know, certainly involved and, and gets, gives me a chance to add my two bits on overall strategy and, and, and things like that. And uh, yeah, it's just a and again, it's working with a bunch of people that I really enjoy working with. So, so it's not really multiple jobs for myself, right? It's it's uh, it's a job, and then and then uh, something that I'm doing as a member of the board. Um, and of course, that doesn't take up a whole lot of my time day to day. And and to that point, I'm even uh, again, as I mentioned, on the board of 92 Energy, um, not as chairman, just a regular board member. Um, but for the same reasons, uh, it's a group that's that's been doing some really exciting stuff, and, and it's really fun to be involved with and a, and a bunch of super people there. So I think that's the best way to sum it up. You know, you look at Keith, he he still does a little bit of work for some some of the other Inventa Group companies too, um, like myself. But but as COSA has ramped up in terms of activity and, and uh, significance, then you know his his time is almost completely devoted to COSA these days. So it's not like we're spreading ourselves amongst a bunch of different companies here um, and collecting salaries from it all. We are focused on the on the ones that are that are paying our salaries, basically. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Steve, I think those are good points. And, you know, there's a few things I think to put into perspective. And 
you know, first of all, how I allocate my 16 hours of day is up to me. And it's up to you, Steve, on how you allocate your 16 hours or whatever the hours are. And also that efficiencies play into those time constraints and how much time you use on certain activities. And then I think too, I mean, for us, I would say probably in the neighborhood of 80% of our time, probably focused on the uranium sector, but we also spend time in other sectors, copper, gold, to name a couple, um, other special situations as well, where we spend and split some of our time not focused on uranium. We still spend a lot of time on uranium, but we certainly have other obligations and engagements outside the sector. And so, you know, also the talented people tend to have a lot of demand for their time. I, I think that that's another component here as well. Some of this, it sounds like you're doing as a hobby and certainly some of the stuff we're doing as a hobby. And we're happy to put a little bit of time into it because, you know, we like to spend time here and cut time down in other places that we don't think is useful. And so I think those are some of the other things that I think people need to understand. And it's true. There's also people out there that take a look at some of these companies in the natural resource sector, and they look and identify certain groups and people out there that do take advantage. And uh, by all means, happy to uh, say that that certainly exists. I mean, how many companies and people have we talked to over the years, um, you do come across certain trends and patterns, and that certainly does exist. But uh, anyway, it's always good to get your take on this from an audience question. And talent in this sector, it's bad everywhere, but talent in this sector and competent people are hard to come by. So if you have less of them, then obviously there's even more additional demand for their time. And for sure. so any thoughts on that, and then we'll move on. You're right. It is it is tough to find people uh, with experience in this sector and, and uh, find that talent. Um, and <laughs> you're quite right about the 16 hours too, right? Like uh, I, I kind of have a day job, but then my evenings are filled with uh, uh, with uranium exploration. And that actually worked quite well with 92 Energy because of the time change. Um, uh, with the ASX, but uh, um, but still, it you know that's that's when I get a lot of my um, uranium work done is evenings. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah, no, it's definitely tough to find talent. A couple of more names that I didn't mention um, earlier that are currently with us and and uh, you know fall firmly under the category of talent. Wes Short was with us at ISO Energy. Um, looking after most of the corporate function there, uh, whether it be you know, corporate secretary and, and beyond. And uh, so he's on our board uh, at uh, at COSA and just is a terrific guy, um, really competent and just a guy that we really like to work with. So, so glad to have him involved. And then uh, a, a young lady named Kelly Stasiak, who has joined us as uh, an exploration geologist. And she is squarely in that category of, of young and keen and bright and uh, just the, definitely a key piece of this puzzle going forward and, and uh, yeah she'll be uh, helping us a lot with the field work uh, coming up here and it's good to be surrounded with some good team as you know CEOs are only so good uh, and they're also based on the team that surrounds them and I think that's a key point as well just as we start to wrap up here and I appreciate the time Steve you know community efforts you know obviously COSA is a smaller company and you know you guys are just starting down this pathway and obviously there's more to come on community efforts but we always ask our guests it's always good to highlight some of the community work that these companies are doing uh, in the community and obviously sourcing of local service providers and local employment and these various other things that we do on community front 
you know, corporate social responsibility. At this point at Smith Weekly, prohibition of using the term ESG, and that we'll just go ahead and stick with CSR as our acronym. But uh, <laughs> any thoughts just uh, on the community front for COSA? Again, I'm lucky to have been mentored by some some people who really know what they're doing on that front. And, you know, guys like Craig are kind of at the forefront of that, I think. Um, you know, tremendous work uh, done at ISO NextGen and, uh, uh, you know, other companies that he's been involved in. And, and so that just kind of filters down. And, and so, yeah, it's something we take very seriously. And uh, we've been in good discussions with uh, local communities in, in the areas that we work and, and and so far, you know, have generally had good support uh, out of that. So, yeah, I know we like to hire locally where we can. We like to uh, yep, hire local contractors uh, where we can. And it's super important when you're when you're working in their backyard. So we think it's extremely important. Stephen, as chairman, talk about how you guys or how you look at this overall company strategy for success and what you would expect to accomplish, say, over the next three to five years. And essentially, you know, all companies have an ending, so to speak. What is that extra strategy in your vision for this company in the years ahead? We're in this for the long run. But in the next three to five years, we want to make a discovery. We want to discover an elephant-sized uranium deposit. We're going to put everything we've got into doing that at COSA. And then at that point, you know, there will be so many options available uh, as far as what happens down the road. Do we do we carry on and uh, develop it or do we, you know, sell it if the if we get an offer that you can't refuse, you know, we, those options will certainly be there. And I think exit strategies will just look after themselves. But the key thing is to, to find that very large, very high grade uranium deposit. And so that's what we're going to do. Well said. Well, Steve, to wrap up for today, for potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about 29 million Canadian dollars. Why should Costa Resources be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio? Uh, it's really interesting, right? The, the uranium price is taken right off and the senior producers and developers have had share price runs that are just uh, extraordinary. Um, but the Keith likes to point out that the sub $30 million exploration companies really haven't participated yet in a meaningful way, although that might have changed slightly as of yesterday. But um, uh, even still, uh, companies like COSA, I think, are extremely cheap. And uh, that risk capital will flow into Uranium Juniors uh, as the price continues to go. So I think that just purely on a speculation point of view, uh, companies like ours are going to do well in this in this run and as I said I don't I don't think this run is about to end anytime soon when you combine that with a company like COSA that actually you know has the has the experience uh, has the track record of, of having made some discoveries in the past then uh, you know I think that we have a better chance of success than most um, so I'll leave it at that and Steve what is the best way for interested parties to reach out to the company yeah, so certainly go to the website and, and uh, I believe there's contact information there. They're, they're certainly welcome to email any of the management, get a hold of us. Just check out what's on the website for, for contact info there. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you again for the time and keep up the work at COSA Resources. Thank you. Andy, thanks. It's been great. Uh, yeah, you're an easy guy to talk to, so really appreciate the opportunity.